0: Welcome to the iHealth Podcast, a podcast for you to relate to like minded individuals discussing hot topics all related to rehab, fitness, and business. Brought to you by Iron Health from Westchester, New York. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in here. Today on the iHealth Podcast, we have Dr. Dimitri Delos. He's an orthopedic surgeon out of ONS in Connecticut and Harrison. In this episode, we dive into ACL reconstruction. We talk all about ACL, kind of hits home for me because I taught my ACL when I was young and that's what got me into physical therapy. So we really dive into the specifics of it. And we also talk about the journey of an orthopedic surgeon and how and why someone might want to do that and the progression of school to school to finally getting out there and, and learning. This is a great episode, a lot of knowledge here. These orthopedic surgeons are filled with it, and I'm happy to be delivering this to you guys. Let me know what you think. Enjoy. All right. Well, thanks for taking some time to kind of Of interview. Of course. I appreciate it. So the way i like to start that is kind of just an introduction on you, Mm -hmm. kind of how you got to where you're at. at. I know becoming an orthopedic surgeon is a journey, so kind of just want to hear up on that. What was that process like?
1: Sure. So... I grew up in Queens. Uh, I'm the son of uh, Greek immigrants. And, um, you know, it was a pretty tight-knit Greek-American community. My first language was Greek. And Mm. amongst Greek-Americans, a fair number have become successful, obviously, as entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. whether with restaurants or real estate or other things. But there no doubt was this sense that... Becoming a professional is the most prestigious thing you could do. So everyone, even if they were successful diner owners or restaurant owners or whatever, wanted their kids to be lawyers or doctors or something along those lines. And I think from a young age, I just was sort of drawn towards medicine. Um, And then when I went to high school, I went to uh, a high school that focused on math and science. And I really got into it uh, a fair amount. And then I said, I remember distinctly in high school saying, medicine is really what I'm going to commit to. And that's really what I want to do. And in addition, much like a lot of people in physical therapy or orthopedics, I had an injury myself. So in high school, I did play high school football. I did get injured, ironically, not on the field while playing high school football, but while playing with my friends uh, out in the park playing football, Mm. tore my ACL, had surgery. And that's when I said, this is it. This is what I'm really into. Um, Surgery in particular, but especially orthopedics, has all the things that I was drawn to. It has anatomy. It has some element of engineering. It's medicine. You're interacting with people. There's a technical aspect to it. And uh, that's what really drew me towards it. And so when I was in college, I took the prerequisites and was fortunate enough to get into medical school. And even from the beginning of medical school, I remember I wanted to do orthopedics and I volunteered to do some research. And then when I got to know some of the orthopedists and I saw what they did and I was in the OR and I thought, wow, this is the coolest place to be. Mm. Uh, I mean, you're helping to orchestrate. Um, you know, the operating room, it's, it's almost like choreography in a sense that you're, you're doing everything is tailored towards this one goal of uh, achieving uh, improved function, relieving pain, all that. And uh, you're with a good group of people. And on top of it, you can play music while you work. And (laughs) uh, I said, this is what I'm going to do. And so you know, you go through college, that's four years. You go through medical school, that's another four years. And for certain specialties, like orthopedics, it's all often encouraged to do a year of research. So you do four years of college, four years of med school, one year of research like I did, five years of residency. And then you often will uh, do a, a fellowship which is where you subspecialize in one particular area of orthopedics. So you can do spine, you can do hand. I specialize in sports medicine and shoulder surgery. And I did a year uh, training uh, for that. And uh, that's basically what I do now, primarily shoulder, elbow and knee surgery. And in particular, uh, I do arthroscopic uh, surgery for all of those joints. And in particular, I have an interest in complex knee Surgery, which involves revision or redo surgeries, um, cartilage and meniscal transplants, arthritis surgery, including partial or total knee replacements, and those sort of things. And so it's been a long road from the time I injured my knee when I was 15 to where I am now. Um, but uh, it's definitely been worthwhile for me, and I've never regretted it. One day, um, I'm very happy with the decision I made, and Every day I feel very fortunate to do what I do.
0: That's awesome. That's a great, like, uh, little history piece there. You know, what's yeah, actually man. funny is uh, I got to PT for the same exact reason you got into surgery. I tore my ACL after my high school uh, football career. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Messing around playing football.
1: Which is ironic because literally everyone I know that played football got injured, and I didn't get injured playing football except for, <laughs> you know, a couple of, you know, bruises or this and that no major injuries never broke anything i'll never forget the last day of practice one year the last play one kid had a uh, open trimalleolar ankle fracture literally the last play so open ankle fracture emergency and so these things happen all the time and i felt very fortunate i never got injured but then you go out to the the park with your buddies and that's when it happens but that's yeah. that's how it is unfortunately i know
0: it's true well, it, it's what's cool is that you actually knew at an early age you wanted to kind of pursue that route. Yeah. Was there was there anyone kind of when you were going to college and med school that was unsure, and would you say that their career was delayed or it was it really didn't matter at that point?
1: Well, uh, I'm I'm glad you brought it up because I think I was very fortunate that early on in my life I sort of gravitated towards a particular thing and committed myself to a particular thing, because I think it made the journey a lot easier. I certainly had a lot of friends who were all very smart, very successful in school. And for them, I think it was a little bit more difficult to really find something that they really clicked with and could say, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to choosing something like medicine, I think a lot of the people, by the time they get to med school and beyond, um, you know, they they've sort of really asked themselves the tough the tough questions because I think medicine is one of those things where you jump through so many hoops, you sort of have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And if you give your, you know, if you have the right answer, then you'll continue. And if you think that it's not worth it, you'll do something else. Whereas to go to business school, you just need an undergraduate degree. You take a test, and you apply. For medical school, for instance, it's not it's not enough to just do well in school. You have to take the MCAT, which is quite difficult. You can't just say, oh, I'm good in math and science and English and just show up one day. You actually have to know the physics, the chemistry, the the bio, and all that, which takes a lot of work. And then on top of it, medical schools, because space is so limited, really want to see That you have a commitment to medicine and that you've done things that prove that or at least demonstrate to some degree that you have a commitment. So, for instance, my brother works in finance and I, much like him, you know, we had the opportunity to do a summer with the iBankers and my brother went one way and I really thought about it during college because I could have made a a lot more money doing it that summer. But I said, no, I'm going to work in the lab. Basically for free and medical schools want to see that you've done things like that, that you've done research, that you've done extracurriculars, that you volunteer, that you demonstrate something that shows them that you really want to commit to a life of medicine. And, um, you know, I think for those people who are interested, dip your toe in the water, get to get to know doctors or nurses, Uh, volunteer. Uh, at the local hospital or with a physical therapy facility or somewhere else just to get a sense of what it's like. Um, We have a lot of um, undergrads and med school, med students that will sometimes rotate through our office or uh, we'll even, you know, we'll have physical therapists that come in. And I always encourage people to come in and observe if it's possible or Something to that effect so that at least you can see firsthand rather than reading about something or 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 something else to that effect. So you can see and experience what it's like and determine for yourself whether you want to go that route.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's great advice. <laughs> Looking back at, at kind of your path, if you were to talk to yourself, you know, your 18 year old self, what would be some advice there like as you go along that journey?
1: Well, I think the advice is <clears throat> have a goal, stick to it and be patient. I think that, and, and also understand that this is the route of delayed gratification. Um, I gave up a lot of my uh, spring breaks. I remember uh, in college because one year, for instance, you have to do study for the MCAD, another year you might be doing some research And there are times where you're envious of other people that are doing those things. And I think it takes some years under your belt to really understand that, you know, I remember someone saying, for instance, that to really see uh, from the top of the mountain, you have to do all, you have to do a whole lot of climbing and, you know, the same sort of thing here, you know, to really get to the highest levels of any particular field, going to have to sacrifice a lot and and this is why i liken a lot of things to sports analogies because with sports you can really see things a lot more plainly people are a little bit more aware of it so if you're going to be roger federer you're going to have to sacrifice your teenage years and your 20s uh and more um these things don't come for free And, uh, there's no free lunch. And I think that, um, you know, the thing I would tell myself is just be patient, just be patient. Uh, and again, I go back to understand what the ultimate goal is. And when you remind yourself of why you're really in it it, or why you're really gunning for it or aiming for it, it really helps to get through those hard times. And, and, you know, there are a lot of, it's not just, the work, but it's also the financial burden. Um, physical therapy school, the same thing. Uh, my sister-in-law yep. is a physical therapist. My brother-in-law, it's a big commitment. I mean, you do, you have to get a doctorate. You have to, you have to pay the tuition. Um, you know, you really want to ask yourself, is this what I want to do? Because you don't want to commit not just your time, which frankly is the most valuable resource. That's the one thing you'll never get back. But also uh, those loans, if you have loans, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have to pay them back at some point. And yeah. so, again, you, you really, for me, it's always going back to what is the ultimate goal? Is this what I really want? And when that's, you know, when you have that in order, uh, I think the rest comes pretty, I wouldn't say easily, but it comes, it comes along.
0: Yeah, that's
1: sound advice there. Yeah.
0: Before we kind of move into like, uh, talking about ACL, I just wanted to touch base on kind of the OR and, uh, you know, how long, how long does it take to get used to that, you know, side of, of,
1: yeah, no, great question. I mean, when you first walk in there as a medical student or as a guest, uh, it's, it's a very strange, strange place because there's a different etiquette in the operating room. Um, you know, first you have to get used to doing everything in a sterile manner, And understanding that you shouldn't be too close to certain things you shouldn't be close to. And so even as a medical student or or someone training, it's going to take you a few weeks, maybe even a couple of months just to get comfortable putting on a gown appropriately, putting on the gloves, walking around and positioning yourself. Um, So that sort of stuff will take a few weeks or or even a few months. Um, Understanding the rhythm of the operating room, uh, that definitely takes longer than a few weeks. Understanding how, understanding your role in, in, in the operating room, because again, as I said, there's sort of a choreography, there's the circulating nurse, there's the, uh, operating nurse or scrub tech, there's the physician, there's the anesthesiologist, uh, that can take a little while, but You know, ultimately, I think if what we're talking about is how long does it take as a physician or a surgeon in particular to get comfortable in the operating room? I mean, that takes years upon years. There's no doubt. Um, Studies clearly show that the more you do of a particular surgery, the better your outcomes are. And I think that's obviously quite intuitive. uh, But also from my own experience, I mean, that's exactly uh, what what you know, what happened because the more ACLs you do, the more rotator cuff surgeries you do, the more fracture surgery you do, the more you can anticipate uh, what comes next. And if plan A uh, can't be executed or isn't working, then what's plan B? I think that mm-hmm. is is really what separates, uh, at least in my line of work, the best surgeons from the better than average or the average surgeons is that... Um, A lot of people can do an ACL, but if it's a complex ACL or if it's an ACL where something comes up that you didn't anticipate, then what do you do? Do you freak out? Uh, Do you start flailing or do you say, look, I have an answer for that uh, and then continue to move forward? So, uh, you know, to get to that level, though, it takes a lot, a lot of practice. And Mm
0: -hmm. while
1: I don't exactly or at least I can't prove whether uh Anders Ericsson's uh hypothesis that you need 10,000 hours is correct there's no doubt you need to actually be in the trenches and do the reps and do the work to get there and that's going to take a long long time I mean I would imagine same thing on the PT side you're not going to be able to you know you're not going to become as good of a diagnostician and 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 someone who can really just watch how someone walks and spend five seconds with them and say oh clearly they have you know, this problem, and they need to work on their core, or they need to work on their hip strength, their abductor strength, they need to work on their calf strength, whatever it is, and that sort of stuff, pattern recognition, that only comes with a lot, a lot of practice.
0: Absolutely. So true. The more you see, the more you do. All right, so I think that's a good segue into kind of talking about ACL tears. And really, I think we could start with, if you have someone who comes in, um, and, and a big reason why we're talking about this, right, is it's super common, especially with young athletes. And sure. it's uh, for myself, I you know, it's one of my favorite things to rehab and see someone progress through. But it's uh, it's good to educate everyone on this. So if yeah. you have someone who comes in fresh off an ACL tear, like, you know, what is your initial conversation with them? If If they really have no idea, anatomy, like how do you describe the ACL, mm-hmm. what it does and what happens and stuff like that?
1: Yeah. So. I mean if we go back to the textbook way of approaching things obviously you need to take a good history and you ask the person let's say it's a younger athlete with younger athletes usually um they'll report some traumatic event now it doesn't have to be a contact event it's usually non-contact so they're running down the field and you know as they're cutting or pivoting uh their leg gets caught the knee twists and uh and they injure it or They're coming down off a rebound and they're landing on that one leg and the knee gives out, or they're going for a header and they're coming down and their knee gives out. Or it's a collision sport like football or rugby where, you know, or in my case, for instance, someone was holding me and the other guy chop blocked me. So they went for my knee and then I just heard a pop. Mm. So usually there's some sort of usual mechanism of injury. And typically the knee, they'll say the knee was in a position where it was straight or hyperextended, uh, twisted, and maybe even the knee was fallen inwards. Um, typically they'll say, oh, I heard a pop or or something along those lines. And then when you observe them as they come in, oftentimes, especially the younger athletes, they're not just walking in and saying, oh, it just hurts. Usually they're hobbling in. They have a lot of swelling. And those are the things I look for on the exam. What's their gait like? Can they weight bear? Is there an effusion, meaning water in the knee? Is the knee swollen like a balloon? Can they straighten or bend the knee? Usually they'll lose some motion. And then, of course, we'll do our what we call provocative exams or special exams for the ACL, where we try and stabilize the femur or the thigh bone and we pull upwards on the shin bone. Or the tibia to see if there's more translation or movement there than we would expect. And so I go over all this in detail with the patients and their families. And what I tell them is look, the ligament, the ACL is a ligament. Uh, At its core, it's basically a bunch of collagen fibers closely aligned and intertwined. And a ligament is what connects one bone to another and confers stability to the. To the joint, which is where the two bones meet one another. When a ligament is stretched beyond its yield point or the point where it can't really rebound and restore its elasticity, it gets stretched beyond that point, then that's where the fibers start to separate from one another. And if it's bad enough, then it completely tears. So we use the word tear or rupture, but in you know, if we're talking technically, a ligament injury is some degree of sprain. And a sprain applies to all ligament injuries. It could be a grade one where you just stretch the ligament a little bit, but the fibers are still largely intact. It could be a grade two where some of the fibers are torn, but some are intact. Or it's a grade three where it's completely torn and none of the fibers are in contact with or or at least intact with one another. So so <clears throat> usually what we'll see in in younger athletes is a grade three type of injury. Usually when you do the provocative exam, you need the patient completely relaxed and they can't be expecting it because then they're guarding. So their hamstrings are going to be firing, which prevent the shin from moving too far forward. Mm -hmm. So we'll have them lie down. We'll have them try and relax. Sometimes I'll even put a pillow under the back of the knee and stabilize the femur and pull on the tibia and see what the translation is like. So The ACL uh, is a ligament that sits in the middle of the knee and it confers front back stability to the knee. In particular, it prevents the shin from moving too far forward relative to the thigh bone, or uh, you can think of it as when the foot is planted or or on the ground, it prevents the thigh bone from moving too far back on the shin bone. And, um, you know, when you don't have that stability, it's a problem anytime you do a cutting or pivoting movement and you try and push off that injured leg, because to push off, you have to extend or straighten the knee. And when you do that, you're going to feel some instability there. You're going to feel the, the femur or the thigh bone slide backwards against the shin, and it's going to be uncomfortable. And in worst case scenario, what happens is you have another what's called pivoting event or the knee jumps, and that's when you get more injury. So in my instance, for uh, you know, in my uh, in my own uh, example, when I was 15, I was in denial for a long time because I said to myself, only real football players or, you know, certain athletes get ACL tears, even though my knee blew up like a balloon, I couldn't walk. And for about six months, I tried to rehab it. And then I went back to soccer, which was another sport I did in the spring. And I'll never forget, we were warming up and we did these drills where we, you know, you jump up, bring both the knees up and then uh, you sort of go back down and uh, my injured knee must have come down first. And I felt that pivoting event where the knee gave out and the knee blew up like a balloon a second time. And that's really the main issue we have with ACL tears in younger people is can you live without it? Of course you can. I mean, people have done it for thousands of years, but can you be effective? without an ACL, typically not at a high level. And when the ACL is not functioning and you try to go back to certain activities, you run the risk of further injury to the knee. And when you injure the cartilage or the meniscus, that's a much much more difficult problem to deal with. We have good techniques to deal with torn ACLs and that can fix your ACL six months, a year, or even five years, whatever it is after the injury. But if you tear your meniscus or cartilage, even though there are things we can do uh, it's hard to really restore the knee back to the way it was. So the best thing to do is never get it injured. So that's Mm -hmm. why we're pretty aggressive about treating ACL tears, especially in younger people, but even older people, you know, adult athletes who do certain sports like cutting pivoting type sports. So anyway, somewhat long winded, winded answer, but, You know, I go over, you know, the things I usually see in patients who tear their ACL. I obviously go over the exam. I show them on a model what the ACL looks like, where it's positioned. Um, You know, we do get x-rays, but in the initial, you know, in the initial evaluation in x-rays, just to demonstrate that there's no fracture and typically there isn't, there's a very specific uh, type of, thing you might see on an x-ray which is kind of uncommon is called the sagun sign where a fleck of bone tears off uh, or pulls off the tibia but that's pretty rare and then of course we get an mri and then that usually will give us the final answer
0: hmm. so what is your like your criteria for surgery
1: yeah good question so <clears throat> does everybody need an acl surgery probably not in fact a lot of my patients, I'll oftentimes recommend they don't have surgery if the ACL tear is not complete, if the knee demonstrates some restoration of stability, if they have other issues that may make recovery from ACL surgery difficult. So if they're uh, severely overweight, if they have severe medical problems, Sometimes it's better to rehab it. Uh, if they do certain sports where, you know, if you're a cyclist, do you absolutely need an ACL surgery? Maybe not. I mean, although a lot of cyclists are obviously cross-training and doing other sports that may involve pivoting. But the truth of the matter is there's no age minimum or maximum. I've done ACL surgery in very young patients, uh, early adolescence, uh all the way to people in their 60s, if they're active, if their knee is otherwise in good condition, and uh, if they do certain activities that put the knee at risk, and oftentimes if they failed non-operative treatment with physical therapy. So oftentimes some people I will send to physical therapy, they'll do six to 12 weeks of rehab, and then we re-examine the knee. And if they're still unstable, then that's a good reason to do surgery. So You know, the reasons to do surgery are the types, you know, the age, the younger you are, the more aggressive we tend to be, or the more we recommend ACL surgery. The types of sports or activities you do, if you rely a lot on uh, cutting or pivoting sports, you should probably consider it. What's the status of the knee? Otherwise, if someone has an ACL tear, but their knee is very arthritic, ACL surgery is not going to cure the problem. They should consider either rehabbing it, or maybe they need a different form of surgery. So that's the way I typically approach it.
0: Hmm. Good criteria there for sure. What are your different techniques? I know you said you had some really young kids and that can differ because of like growth plates and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's,
1: um, there's, there's young and then there's very, very, very young. And, um, You know, for younger athletes, and I'm talking about early adolescents, like 12, 13, 14 years old, who still have open growth plates, usually what we'll do or what I'll do is a modification of the typical ACL surgery, where I try and skirt around the growth plate so that I don't go through them to risk possible early growth arrest, which means that the growth plate closes and then the leg doesn't Uh, grow anymore, which is obviously a problem. Uh, In very, very young uh, children, say eight, nine, or 10 years old, then you often can't even do something that resembles a normal ACL surgery. You'll have to do something that's um, a little bit different and really a temporizing surgery until they get a little bit older, because in those kids, you really cannot risk any growth plate injury whatsoever. And so what we'll do is something like an iliotibial band uh, reconstruction where we take a strip of the iliotibial band that's along then on the side of the knee, and we run it through the center of the knee uh, to function as an ACL, but without drilling through the bones. Um, In younger people, in, in kids a little bit older than that, like I said, oftentimes we will do drilling, but we may do it in a way where we don't go through the growth plate. Especially the thigh bone one, the femur one, because that's the one that typically can get injured, although it's very uncommon uh, if you uh drill it uh, sometimes it you know it can get injured uh, but in a sixteen year old and above or someone who's basically gone through puberty, we do a a traditional ACL surgery where it's a reconstruction we don't that's basically rebuilding the aCL we don't really Repair ACLs, although that has been talked about more recently, mm. um, to stitch the ACL back typically doesn't work um, for a variety so, of reasons.
0: Where where is that coming from?
1: So then? so so um, if we go back to the 19, early nineteen seventies, um, Dr. Fagan was a doctor at West Point. He was an orthopedist, and he, he actually published some studies on this. They took the cadets who injured their ACL. Back then, there were no MRIs, so you just went on exam. You bring them to the operating room. You make a big incision. Uh, you find the torn ACL, and then you try and stitch it back. Basically, you, you, you put stitches in both ends, and you tie the stitches or suture it back, right? Now, that's not completely fair to compare to today's ACL repair, because obviously the techniques are different and the rehab is different. Back then, they used to put you in a cast for like six weeks. The knee would shrivel up, the quad uh, would shrivel up, the knee gets stiff. But what they saw in the the data back then is that a traumatic ACL tear in some of these younger high-end athletes or cadets If you try and repair it, it's just not going to work. The majority of these will fail. Um, Nowadays, there are perhaps very, you know, there are some exceptions where we might consider a repair, basically trying to bring the ligament back up to the bone and and get it uh, attached back to the femur because that's where it usually will pull off. But in general, um, but I think that's a little bit beyond the scope of this, you know, in general, the ACL surgery is a reconstruction surgery. You rebuild the ligament by taking a tendon from somewhere else. And oftentimes that's from the patient themselves. Although you can get from the tissue bank, basically a cadaver from someone who donated it upon their death. Uh, That's called an allograft. And In general, I favor the autographs or the patient's own tendon because it has live cells. The allograft uh, does not really have live cells. It's been uh, processed, it's been stored. All the cells uh, have basically vanished and it's just a piece of collagen. So while allograft surgery takes away the need to take a tendon from somewhere on your body, it also means that the recovery While initially it seems quicker, biologically, it takes a lot longer because now you just have this collagen scaffold that has to be infiltrated by your own cells, and that process takes a long time. So um, when you use your own tendon, it has live cells. It's going right back into the knee, and the biology is in your favor. Mm -hmm. Um, There are different graft options, meaning you can use different tendons, and we do use different tendons for different needs. So, if you ask me what's my algorithm, I mean, in the highest risk group, which tends to be teenage women and men, um, but especially young women, uh, they have a risk of ACL tear that can be up to eight times higher than boys, which seems uh, unusual, but because we always hear about the football player who tears their ACL, but the truth is, young girls, for a variety of reasons, are at higher risk for ACL tear. So in those high-risk groups where the chance of injuring your ACL is very high, uh, I will use what's called a patellar tendon graft, and that's taking uh, one of the tendons in the front of the knee and using that to replace the ACL. Uh, In adults where the risk of retear is lower, oftentimes we can do a soft tissue graft, meaning it's just tendon, no bone attached to it. And in that case, I'll use... Oftentimes, the hamstring, which is um, really a series of three tendons uh, on the inner side of the back of the knee, and we, t- we can usually just take one tendon and replace the ACL, or I'll use the quad tendon, which is another tendon in the front of the knee, uh, and, um, you know, we'll use either one depending on patient preference If you use the quad tendon, then, you know, your quad will usually uh, get a little bit weaker after surgery and you have to work harder to get your quad back. If you use a hamstring, then your hamstring can be a little bit weaker. So your knee flexion strength is a little bit weaker. Uh, But over the course of time with good rehab, people recover nicely. And, you know, typically they have little, if any deficiency. And then in uh, people that are the lowest risk. So, um, You know, older adults who are active, um, but uh, their risk of retear is low. I might consider a cadaver, although, again, oftentimes I will consider their own tendon as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So your biggest criteria, because I get this question a lot, too, like people are, are, they want to know the difference between a hamstring graft and a patella. So yours is just based on uh, retear rate.
1: Yeah, my, mine is age and retail rate and uh, type of sport. So, you know, if you're a wrestler, even though you're 16 years old, uh, I may not consider a patellar tendon because to do the patellar tendon, you have to make an incision in the front of the knee. As you know, you have to take a little bit of bone from the kneecap and from the tibia or the shin bone. And that that is actually kind of painful. So the bruising is a little bit greater immediately post-op. The pain is a little bit more immediately post-op. And people will report, and I always counsel them, that you will likely have some pain in the front of the knee for six to 12 months, along with some numbness in the front of the knee for at least six to 12 months. So in patients who are in certain sports, or if you're a carpenter and you're on your knees a lot, you know, those type of. Uh, those type of people, you may not want to do a patellar tendon, even if they are at high risk because of the issues that come with it. And in say mm-hmm. a sprinter, you may not want to do a hamstring because the hamstrings are really important in sprinting. So there are a lot of things that go into, but yes, in general, younger, high risk sport or collision sport. Um, I like p- uh, patellar tendon and that's bone, patellar tendon, bone, autograph. That's what you'll often see it as lower risk weekend warrior type person, you know, the recreational skier or tennis player. Uh, And even myself now 20 something years after 25 plus years after my patellar tendon ACL surgery. If I had it now, I'd probably go with a hamstring or a quad tendon because Mm -hmm. the outcomes in my age group are very good with soft tissue grafts and it's an easier recovery. I'm not taking bone. So I don't have some of the issues associated with that. uh, And you don't have the pain in the front of the knee. So uh, that's the way I like it. And then in people who either really do not want to take their own tendon or in people that are in the lowest risk group, uh, we might consider an allograft if that's what they want to do.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Now, someone who is going through the surgery, what do you, What are some expectations or uh, ways you prep them for rehab and kind of their goals and what to expect?
1: So I always tell people um, the mantra or the philosophy of musculoskeletal care 30 years ago to now is uh, 180. So if you injured your back 30 years ago, you might be lying in bed for a week or two. Or if you had your ACL surgery 30 years ago, you're in a cast for X number of weeks. Now, mobilization is critical. Um, and that goes for all of my knee patients, uh, virtually, you know, except in maybe rare instances. Shoulder stuff is a little bit different if you have a rotator cuff, but in general, people who've had orthopedic surgery are encouraged to get going sooner rather than later. And in my ACL patients, that means that they're probably going to see the physical therapist, someone like you or someone in your group the next day or within 48 to 72 hours. Because to me, it's very critical that um, they get someone that shows them how to fire the quad, gets them to really work on their extension or straightening of the knee, gets them to work on their gait from the beginning. The sooner someone does that, the easier the recovery tends to be. And and in my experience, um, getting momentum in the first few days is so critical to the outcome that I'm really, really adamant about people getting started early. So I tell my patients, I'd want you to see the therapist within 48 to 72 hours if possible. I want you every day to work on quad strengthening, uh, work on your gait and work on your motion especially the extension the first two weeks. People get very caught up in trying to bend the knee a certain amount. And while that's important, if you don't get your ability to straighten or extend the knee within the first, first four to six weeks, it's going to be very hard to get it. Mm-hmm. So I tell them the first couple of weeks, you got to work on that. By four to six weeks, you've got all your motion typically, and you're walking normally, and you're probably off the bracing crutches completely. And then we work on strengthening. So at that point, you spend another four to six weeks working really hard on your core, your hip, your thigh, your calf. And so now you're at about three months after surgery. At three months, if you've done all things right, you're usually strong enough to start some straight ahead activity like light jogging. Uh, By four and a half months, four, four and a half months, then you start some more side to side drills. And by six months, the earliest, you may be able to be cleared for return to sport without restrictions. But I will say this. That comes with a caveat. In the higher risk patients, like the younger athletes, I, am, I would prefer they wait eight, nine months if possible. Because the longer they have to recover, typically the lower the risk of a re-injury. And in that group of patients in particular, although all my patients, if they want to, I do like to have them see someone like you and get some pre-sports clearance testing where we look to see how strong is that leg compared to the opposite leg. How far can you jump? And are your landing mechanics appropriate on that operative leg? Uh, And we have them go through all that sort of stuff. Uh, to see if they're ready to go back. So typically what I tell people, just to recap, immediate motion, immediate weight bearing, uh, work on your quad strength. By four to six weeks, you should have all your motion and walking normally. People shouldn't be asking you, oh, what surgery did you have? Because they really shouldn't be able to tell, hopefully by then. Uh, After the first six weeks, you're working almost exclusively on strength training, Uh, along with other things but by three months hopefully you're strong enough uh, where you can do um, say an eight inch step down off a stool uh, and we can start some light jogging then when you get used to that we work on side to side drills and then we talk about possibly clearing you to sports without restrictions
0: yeah that's a that's a great kind of outline there and it's it's, you know it's the hardest part with that is people want to know, like, hey, when can I go back? You know, and yep. every single person's different, and yep. every single guideline is different, really, yeah, like, how does mean, someone present?
1: You know, and I tell people, I remind them, this is not a time-based rehab outline. This is a criteria-based rehab outline. Mm-hmm. I give you milestones or dates that you know where we might expect you're going to be ready, but like you say, everybody's a little bit different. And everybody recovers a little bit different. Everybody's needs are a little bit different. Um, And, um, you know, what I encourage people also is to do things, uh, you know, according to the supervision of the therapist. And also don't compare yourself to Adrian Peterson. Don't compare yourself to Roberto Baggio, who in, uh, I don't know if it was 1990 or whatever, 94 World Cup. You know, had an ACL reconstruction with Gore-Tex, which we don't even use anymore, and then supposedly got back to play in the World Cup in three months. Okay, You cannot compare yourself to an NFL MVP or the world's best soccer player um, because the chances are none of us uh, are going to be those type of genetic superstars. We look at, you know, what's the average, what can you expect, reasonably expect? And if anything, I would err on the side of going a little bit slower than going too too quick, although in the beginning, again, we do want you to get on the right path and get moving immediately and do all the things we talked about.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. That was, that was great. So we'll kind of wrap this up. If you have any last thoughts and some ways that people can find out more about you, if they got some questions or concerns or need to come um, in.
1: You know, I would say um, I, I always strive to be available to my patients. Um, I look at it as a, as a partnership. Um, I try to educate people on the things that I know. Uh, and really try to listen to them, to hear what it is that they need, what it is they want, what are their expectations. Um, so it's a partnership that we develop uh, with the ultimate goal of getting you back to doing all the things you want to do in as pain-free and uh, as pain-free a manner and with the greatest um, um, function, etc., cetera, that we would, uh, we could hope for. So Um, The ways people can find out more about me, I encourage people to go to www.onsmd.com and you can look up my profile there. Um, We do have some videos. uh, I I have some videos on my uh, website or you can look at, um, you know, on my profile there. You can see some um, different presentations that I've done. You can see some of the research I've done in the past. I do have a Twitter account, although admittedly, I'm not as, uh, up to date with Twitter as I could be. It's Demetrius Delos MD. Um, and, uh, what I would encourage people is, uh, certainly if you have any orthopedic issues, sports medicine, shoulder, knee, or even elbow, um, I'm, I'd be more than happy to see you or speak to you. Um, hopefully, um, uh, with all that's going on in the world, we'll return to normal pretty soon, but I am doing telehealth in the meantime. And I look forward to seeing people in the office. And for those people who might think of orthopedics as a career, um, you know, you can try reaching out to our office and we do a variety of things for the community, whether it's for high school students, we have something called mini med school. If it's undergraduates, we have things where they can rotate through our office And if it's for higher level uh, individuals that are already MDs, um, we can perhaps do a a personalized um, schedule where they can uh, observe. And for the therapists out there, I also encourage people to reach out. Um, I love having therapists around because I love asking for your opinion and your expertise. I learn as much from you uh, as uh, any other doctor, Um, you know, so I love hearing how things are working for you guys and um you know i look forward to again speaking to people and learning from them
0: fantastic well thank you very much and once we get through this again we'll kind of touch base and you know best of luck with everything but i appreciate your time
1: all right thanks so much joe
0: all right man i'll talk to you soon